Now, if you would please stand and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We continue on through the Sermon on the Mount. We, I think we've been in Matthew chapter 5 for five or six months, it seems like. We finally come to the end of Matthew 5, God willing. Now, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Bless those, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. May God add His richest blessing to the reading of this portion of His holy word. Be seated, please. Family resemblance. This is the last of the six examples Jesus used to draw a contrast between his teaching and the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus has said that unless our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, we'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The essential problem with the so-called righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was that it was shallow. We've seen that. And these six examples Jesus gave through which we have worked, anger, lust, divorce, honesty, retaliation, and now love, are not comprehensive of all that was wrong with the scribes and Pharisees, but they are very common and practical examples. They are prime examples of where their idea of righteousness and where our ideas of righteousness all too often simply are not deep enough. And in this passage, Jesus shows that their concept of love was shallow. Now, it would be very difficult, if not impossible, to come up with a more timely, appropriate, or practical message for our time than a rebuke of a shallow concept of love. Notice, In verse 45, Jesus says that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. We know that God is love. And Jesus is saying that if our love resembles God's love, or better, if our love resembles God, who is love, The resemblance shows 
that we are indeed His children. But love as the scribes and Pharisees defined it did not resemble God's love. It did not resemble God and revealed that they were not His children. So now let's look together at love and family resemblance. First, in this passage, we see corrupted law. Corrupted law. Look at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now this is half true. It's a direct quote. Half of it is of the Old Testament law of Moses, specifically Leviticus 19, 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But just listen, no need to turn. Listen to the whole verse and the one that comes before it. It says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You see, it says, don't hate your brother and don't take vengeance or bear a grudge against the children of your people. Then it says, love your neighbor as yourself. The Pharisees took that to mean that the neighbor they were commanded to love was only one of their own. And it is clear in the passage that this is the very idea Jesus was pushing back against. Look at what he said in Matthew 5, 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Clearly, that's what they believed. You're only required to love your own kind. And Jesus said, no. There's nothing godly or righteous about that. Even, he said, the tax collectors do that. You know, the tax collectors were the people most despised by the Jews. They were Jews who worked for Rome, so they were traitors. And they overtaxed the people, and the Roman government let them get a kickback. And so as well as traitors, they were extortioners and thieves. Surely, they thought, there must be a special place in hell for the tax collectors. Jesus said, the Pharisees and scribes are no more righteous than the tax collectors. Their concept of love was every bit as shallow. 
Now, they had taken this idea that they were commanded only to love their own people, and they had extracted a principle, or maybe fabricated a principle from that, that said, love your own and hate everybody else. That's how they came up with the second half of the verse. Hate your enemies. That's a bad interpretation and a corruption of the Old Testament law. If we look in the same chapter of Leviticus 19, just listen, Leviticus 19, same chapter, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. It says in verses 9 and 10, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, and you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. They were required to leave enough for the poor and the stranger to glean. Of course, a stranger was a foreigner, a non-Israelite. They were not commanded to hate him, but allow him to glean in their fields. In Exodus 23, verses 3 and 4, it says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. That's uh, Exodus 23, 4 and 5. These laws are the same for if your brother's ox gets away or is down under its load. You've got to return the animal that has gotten away, even if it belongs to your enemy and you don't like him. You've still got to return his animal. And you've got to help him carry the load, even if it belongs to your enemy. These laws hardly mean anything close to hate your enemy. Now, Proverbs are not laws, but they are Scripture. And Proverbs 25, verses 21 to 22 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you will heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. In other words, as we might say, kill him with kindness. Hate your enemy flies in the face of these plain precepts of the Old Testament. Now, further proof that Jesus is not introducing something altogether new here is the illustration he uses. He says God sends rain and sun to his enemies. Genesis 2.5 says that God had not yet made it rain, but he'd been sending rain 
even on people who hate him, since not long after that. We see corrupted law. The Old Testament never said hate your enemies. Corrupted law. Secondly in this passage we see love for enemies. Look at verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies... Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now, there are those who think that there has been some kind of a reversal from Old Testament times. They would point to the conquest of the the promised land of Canaan and instances in which the Lord commanded His people completely to wipe out the enemy as something that was contradicted or better to say superseded by Jesus' command to love your enemies. But even back then, the Lord did not give His people carte blanche to go around killing everybody they didn't like. Those were very specific commands given in very specific circumstances for the purpose of taking the promised land and the Israelites generally were not particularly eager to do it anyway. But we think of David showing kindness to Saul even though Saul was his enemy trying to kill him. Or a little Israelite girl who was captured and taken back to Syria, telling the great Syrian commander Naaman, her enemy, that he could go to Elisha and be healed of his leprosy because there's a God in Israel. Now the concept of loving One's enemies was not invented in the New Testament. Look at what Jesus said to do in verse 44. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Again, We were always taught not to quote somebody unless you couldn't say it better. And as usual, it can't be said as far as I know any better than Lloyd-Jones said it. So listen, Dr. Lloyd-Jones said, the whole secret of living this kind of life is that man should be utterly detached. He must be detached from others in the sense that his behavior is not governed by what they do. But still more important, he should be detached from himself. For until a man is detached from himself, he will never be detached from what others do to that self. As long as a man is living for himself, he is sensitive, watchful, and jealous. 
He is envious and is therefore always reacting immediately to what others do. The only way to detach yourself from what others do to you is that you first of all detach yourself from yourself. That's the only way you can bless someone who curses you. You must detach, and I must detach myself from myself. Lloyd-Jones went on to say, if we examine ourselves, we shall see that one of the most tragic things about us is that our lives are so much governed by other people and by what they do to us and think about us. Try to recall a single day in your life. Think of the unkind and cruel thoughts that have come into your mind and heart. What produced them? Somebody else. How much of our thinking and acting and behavior is entirely governed by other people? It is one of the things that make life so wretched. You see a particular person and your spirit is upset. If you had not seen that person, you would not have felt like that. Other people are controlling you. Now, says Christ, in effect, you must get out of that condition. Your love must become such that you will no longer be governed and controlled by what people say. Your life must be governed by a new principle in yourself, a new principle of love. That's the point. If someone hates me and I hate him back, he's controlling me. If he attacks me and I retaliate, He's controlling me. But if he curses me and I bless him, he has no control over what Scripture calls my inner man. And if he persecutes me, he may hurt, even kill the body. But if I pray for him, he has no power over my inner man. We see corrupted law, love for enemies, and thirdly and finally, we see the children of God. The children of God. Look at verse 45 that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. It's very much natural to retaliate when attacked by an enemy. And in a previous passage, Jesus taught us not to retaliate. But here he goes even further. John Stott quotes St. Augustine as saying, Many have learned how to offer the other cheek, but do not know how to love him by whom they were struck.
it's so foreign to our nature to love one who attacks us. How can one of us possibly learn to do what is, in fact, so contrary to our nature? We must become the children of God. We must be born again of His Spirit. We must be adopted out of the natural stock and lineage of Adam and brought into the family of God through His only begotten Son. The Scripture says that while we were His enemies... God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is to say, God loves His enemies. He loved us. And if you are a believer, God did not start loving you when you believed. He loved you when you were still on the other side. An old theologian by the name of Van Til used to say that God will never stop loving you because He never started. His love is eternal, without beginning or end. It's unconditional. He did not love us because of anything we did or anything He saw that we would do. He loves us in spite of everything. And He gave His only begotten Son to die who take away our sin and reconcile us to Him. And it's His love that is shed abroad in our hearts, poured, dumped into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The last verse of this passage, verse 48, Therefore you shall be perfect, just your Father in heaven is perfect. Some take this to mean that we can achieve perfection in this life. That's obviously wrong. But others take this to mean that, that we cannot be perfect, so the only point of this, Jesus telling us to be perfect as God is perfect, is to drive us to see how imperfect we are and seek forgiveness and grace for falling short. That's all it does. Well, surely it does that, but it does more than that. The standard of perfection is not the shallow, self-interested love of the Pharisees then or the shallow self-interested love of our own time. 
Scripture says, if you want a definition of love, if you want to know what love really is, God is love. And it ought to be our aim to be a little more like Him today than we were yesterday. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested towards us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This table declares the love of God. Love is not a feeling or a sentiment. Love is a broken body and shed blood. This is the love of God. And now let us come to the God who loves us in love to Him. We love Him because we first, He first loved us. And loving Him as He first loved us, let us sing together, I love the Lord. <laughs> 